Ms. Dubik, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Let's look at the transition from apartheid to democracy. Uh, some people will argue that uh, there's uh, quite a lot uh, to celebrate, but do you feel uh, actually not? Well, it must be said that, you know, there are indeed quite a few things that we can still celebrate, you know, just the relative independence of our courts, just the manner in which they repeatedly strike down legislation which is unconstitutional. We've got excellent um, facilities which support democracy, like, you know, the Public Protector's Office, you know, the South African Human Rights Commission. Um, You know, we've got a relatively free press. You know, and people enjoy certain civil and political rights, you know, freedom of association, you know, in the sense that nobody stops you from, you know, associating with anybody, you know, political rights, nobody stops you from joining political parties, etc. But I think um, the main concern is that there are some issues that still nag South Africa. You know, we still haven't made much progress, you know, in terms of achieving equality and we have this relentlessly high crime rate and it means that, you know, certain groups, you know, particularly women, children, people from the lesbian um, gay community are particularly vulnerable. And, you know, over the last year particularly, you know, we've just seen increasing um, fighting, infighting in key state institutions like the National Prosecuting Authority, SARS, SAPS, and obviously this means that the extent to which they can abide by their constitutional duties is obviously in question. And yeah, towards the end of the year and into early this year, you know, we saw the fees for protests, which are also linked to language and higher education, and those kinds of questions still haven't been settled. So I think whilst there's been some gains in some area, but there are still a lot of concerns that remain in terms of the actual realization of human rights. Mm. Uh, but we have laws and policies, uh, really, that protect such rights. I mean, you're talking about, for instance, uh, you know, human uh, uh, women's rights and uh, rights and uh, issues around, uh, you know, uh, sexual preferences and so on. You, you are raising those issues, but there are laws that are that are enshrined to make sure that uh, those are protected. But it's, uh, it's how the communities relate to uh, some of the issues that you've raised. So it, it, it's not really about government not doing enough, but perhaps it's how then we as members of the community, uh, communities take those, those issues forward. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's always been said that, you know, there's always this big gap between the Constitution and its aspirations, but, you know, the lived reality on the ground is very different from what the Constitution says. So, yes, ultimately it does come down to what people understand of the Constitution and what they expect from the Constitution, and those expectations are very much different from what the reality is on the ground. You have, uh, for instance, highlighted 2015. Uh, you've said that uh, the Constitution obliges the state to respect, protect, promote, and fulfill the rights in the Bill of Rights. Of course, that is, that is taken. But uh, you said, let's look at 2015. What are you highlighting in this particular year? Well, what our report does is just consider all the... Well, what we would consider systemic events of 2015, or if they're not systemic, you know, in events that really shock the conscience of the nation. So in 2015, we just looked at, you know, certain highlights of the year. So, for example, you know, the pertinent decisions that came out of the Constitutional Court. We looked at, you know, the protests 
um, in, in, on, on campuses. We looked at the metric results and just broke down the metric results and, and analyzed them, for example. We looked at, you know, in political rights, looking at the constitutional court's decision where they struck down a decision of the Electoral Commission Court, etc. So the report basically looks at, you know, the highlights of 2015 and then puts them into a human rights framework. And then from there, we try and score the nation and rather the government's role in terms of respecting, protecting and promoting those rights in the Bill of Rights. Mm. And and it's interesting that uh, you're saying Parliament's failure to hold the executive accountable is uh, notable instances. Uh, in notable instances, that is means that uh, the state is failing short or falling short of uh, the stipulation uh, that uh, the notion's uh, foundational values require a government that is accountable. Just tell us more about that. Well, I think the big example here would be the Ngandla matter. You know, for example, the Constitution stipulates that Parliament's role is to hold the executive accountable and also to provide a a public platform for the consideration of national issues. So after the report had been submitted by the Public Protective Office, you know, Parliament as, um, you know, in terms of its constitutional duty was mandated to look into that report, you know, apply its mind rationally rather than you know, the rubber stamping that we saw, rather than passing on the report to the police minister. I mean, in the legal process, there really shouldn't have been a role for the um, police minister. So obviously that led to the protracted litigation that we saw, and right now we're still waiting for the um, judgment by the Constitutional Court. But, um, you know, in a functioning democracy, Parliament was really supposed to have applied its mind to that report and exercised its oversight duty over the executive. So the matter should never really have come to court in the first place if all three branches of government were abiding by what the Constitution says they should be doing.